This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 207, brought to you in association with Smart enlistedboards.com and I'm delighted to be joined today by Nikki Mann, CEO of Spectrum Markets, to talk about fintech's impact, or perhaps relatively small impact so far, on financial markets and where it might all be going. Way back in LFP 096, we had the only episode so far on fintech and financial markets, talking to Elmex Exchange, who at the time were doing several trillion dollars. But apart from that, incoming emails to me on this topic have been few and far between. Or, to put it another way, this is roughly the only one since then, unless you want to count Capital.com, who are on the show. So, can fintech impact markets worth gazillions? If so, how much will it impact it? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Nicky. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. Pleased to be here. So, in my uh, never-ending search... 207 episodes in for fascinating and deep philosophical topics of conversation to, to kick off. I thought I'd talk about biscuits, as you, you, kindly, <laughs> you kindly put a plate in front of me, and I was recalling that actually going back to FX and markets in the days when I was deciding what was going to go up and what was going to go down, I developed a fatal sugar habit because I'd listened to my colleagues all giving their views and all that kind of stuff and had to feign interest. But I was very always near the because I was at the head of the table, I was always near the, the biscuits, and I would just keep eating chocolate biscuits and sugary stuff. And I kind of got a sugary addiction um, ever since then, actually. But you were also saying that you thought sugar was a thing and, and not as innocuous as actually it appears. It is. It's my only vice, I think. I, the, the key is never to start, but I am a self-confessed sugar addict. Can't quite trace back like you where it began, but it's, it's something I try and keep under control. And, and on a serious note, I do think over the next 10 to 15 years that will become similar to the tobacco industry in, in terms of an addictive thing that has, has repercussions for people's health. So it's something I try and keep at bay, but, but being a sugar addict, we all succumb to it sometimes. Yes, exactly. I think there's a kind of thing with it, probably addiction to most things, sex, drugs, rock and roll or whatever, that you've got some built-in mechanism which stops you. But when that fuse is blown, exactly. <laughs> you're always going to be temptable. I mean, you know, I've known one or two alcoholics back in the day, and they certainly were the ones that go through alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous anyway, have the attitude that alcohol is a demon which they need to keep away from, presumably because there have been plenty of people who thought, well, I'll have half a shandy. You know, what harm can it do? And before you know, you've had a whole pint of... Uh, Pint of shandy. Yes, well, I, I agree as well, actually, in that sugar is relatively recent. And I was, as I was saying before we kicked off, when I was young, you'd have a bar of chocolate a week if you're lucky as a treat, and things were far less sweet, like cakes and all that. Now you can walk into a Costa Coffee or a Starbucks or some crap like that, and there's sort of six-inch high cakes with about half the day's calories in it. And in terms of diabetes around the world and pre-diabetic syndrome and all this kind of stuff, it's major, major cause in that epidemic and diabetes is an awful disease. I mean, I knew for myself that I certainly feel a hell of a lot better when I'm in, on my intermittent fasting mode where I don't eat for 16 hours a day 
and just your whole feeling of being a human being is radically different. You know, I don't want to sound like sort of somebody trying to convert all the heathens out there who are busy eating biscuits the whole day or chocolate or whatever. But it's just, you feel existentially different if, if you basically what you're doing is resetting your insulin and ghrelin, your hunger hormone. When I'm snacking through the whole day, I'm hungry the whole time. Once I've got into the IF, which these days only takes me a couple of days to get into it, I don't feel hungry at all. I feel hungry before the, the meal, but it's old-fashioned proper hunger. Mm. No, I agree. And even, even having some kind of we were discussing before, but some kind of eating habits or something that you, you track or you have a structure to, I think is really important. And when you feel the benefits of how you operate yourself with or without that, I think um, the results speak for themselves. Having said that, everyone, including us, is human. And uh, you, now and again, you can't help it. What do you have a biscuit in that case? <laughs> well, you started. You see, that's why I pushed the plate away. I, I, my trick is never to start. Yes, exactly. So talking about deep and philosophical uh, matters and actually joking apart, there probably is something deep um, uh, about uh, sugar and its impact on the entire world. We were also going to talk uh, very briefly, because it, it, for reasons that shall become apparent, it's of relevance to you, about flying on aeroplanes. I used to do quite a bit of that, but uh, we're about to fly a week Saturday as we record this, and that'll be the first time we've flown for 21 months, which is roughly the longest period of my life since sort of flying took off perhaps in the 80s, of not flying on aeroplanes. And from what I see from the media and all this kind of stuff, flying on airplanes isn't as much fun as it used to be. 78-hour queues outside Gatwick and all this kind of stuff. So as somebody who flies, and you can tell people now why you fly or a bit later, you must have experienced this for yourself in terms of that uh, flying isn't always smooth at the moment. How's your experience been and where are you flying from? No, I mean, traveling in general is never always smooth, but as you alluded to, I, I fly a lot around Europe, particularly. So you can try and organize your way out of it, try to take, it, take flights at times that are, are not so busy. Myself, I live in Canary Wharf, which is just by city airport, so that cuts down the, the journey time as well. But flying at the end of the day is, is if you're, particularly if you're going on a holiday to somewhere unique, it's still an enjoyable experience. When you end up in those horrific queues that you hear about in the news now and again, obviously it can be disconcerting and not so pleasurable, but uh, generally speaking, it's still a it, it, it's still something to be appreciated at the end of the day. I mean, I was saying to you, we fly for business and we think about it like that. I just saw uh, Top Gun 2, the movie, when you see flying like that, you still put you in a different move. I recommend to anyone to go and see that in the cinema. I think it's a, a movie that's made for that experience. Yes, and I've seen people uh, tweeting that it, apparently it's quite a, a normal movie, unaffected by the sort of uh, layers of wokeism that hit the average film these days. So, coming on to why you fly around, how did you get here today in terms of running Spectrum Markets? What was your career journey to that? Yeah, I mean, tying it into flying again is becoming a theme. I, I, uh, by training and background, I'm a corporate lawyer. So hopefully people won't turn up after hearing that. But, uh, I was about to say, uh, normally corporate <laughs> lawyers don't do anything interesting, actually. So that's going to be one of the things that somehow you're going to have to reveal to us. Yeah, and no, I was a corporate lawyer. And, and from an early age, I was, I was a lawyer for American law firms. So I always traveled between London and the States doing cross-border transactions. And after... Six or seven years of that, I had the, uh, the fortune to join a fintech group, IG Group, as a lawyer and started to look at their strategy. And as we'll get on to in the, in, the, in the podcast, in the back end of 2016, we started to think about doing something different in Europe in the exchange financial market space. And fast forward three years, uh, that was the creation of Spectrum that took three years to build. And I've, and I've run that ever since as CEO. And Spectrum is a subsidiary of IG. Yes, wholly, wholly owned. It was, it was developed. All the resource and the investment was put in by the group, but it is, is set up as a standalone business with a different purpose than IG's core business, and it has several 
businesses as a group and um, something that we'll get onto in terms of its philosophy and, and how it impacts the financial markets that I think really showcases how technology can have an impact and lead also to outcomes for particularly retail people, you know, the common people, the people that are like you and me, rather than big institutions and how it can democratise almost the markets when those things are blended together properly. Yes, and it's always interesting to note that there are many models as opposed to the median model of, you know, you and a mate have a chat in a pub and then the next day you set up your fintech and you try and raise a few quid from your buddies and your family and you do your A's and your B's and your C's and all that kind of stuff. And each model has its pros and cons. And I think one of the, I presume, positives about doing this kind of model, which I'm hearing you talk, I think of as a little bit like Lexus at Toyota. Toyota thought we've got to do something quite different. So, OK, we'll just do a do its own thing over there and Lexus will have its own brand and you know it's part of us but we won't put it entirely in the usual corporate organogram because otherwise if you always do what you always did you always get what you always got there'll be some sort of kind of um, self-contained nature of it. One of the benefits of that and IGE's seminal role in this was shown by the fact that Capital.com set up by Ivan Gowan a few years ago who were a sponsor of the London Tech podcast back in the day. He was ex-IG as well, IG Index. So IG spawns both internally and externally. Some interesting developments. But you're the kind of person who set up a business coming from the perspective of understanding extremely well the incumbents and extremely well the marketplace. The opposite model is a lot of people sort of say, oh, I'm going to set up a, an app bank. How hard can it be? The banks are rubbish. Uh, and then they slowly find that actually it's harder than they think. And whilst the banks may be rubbish, they're not as rubbish as some of these startups, he said, having had six weeks by now of chat help or lack of from Revolut on their card, which just works totally randomly. It won't ask me for a pin. Sometimes it will at others. It says they've got the pin wrong. It will, won't tap. It will tap. And uh, Revolut, of course, now is a, is, has got lots of resources. It's worth a lot. But basic things that I've never had fail with any bank in over 40 years just can't be solved in weeks. So in terms of how hard can it be? It's quite hard. And sorry, this is a very long waffly thing. Totally unlike me, of course. Ha ha. If you're starting in an incumbent, it's a big, powerful incumbent, you have a great understanding of, yes, it is actually harder than it appears, and also what the market actually is, as well as the gaps. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So coming, coming afresh from the outside, you'd have those problems that you just articulated. I think inside, I believe to set up something so different, so Spectrum is very different to uh, IG's existing business or a capital.com in that it's a completely uh, an exchange and a whole different business line. I think you do have to have a certain degree of naivety. So the fact that I hadn't been around the IG for so long probably helped. You do from the inside, of course, have an idea of the financial markets. And I think this is a key thing to get through. The group, this group has 40, coming on to 50 years of pure retail client experience. And it's taking that philosophical ethos and blending that into a new industry that actually caused us to create Spectrum, which is something different in the market. So keeping together the, 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 the core philosophy and then almost not getting bogged down into the details of a, of a large corporate incumbent is key to be able to get a, a new business off the ground and, and resourced, and resourced and then off the ground should be in that order, I think is fundamental. I think if you have just a new idea, even if it's from an incumbent, but it doesn't match philosophically with what that group is doing, I think you will hit problems later down the line. So I think this business was set up by the right group. On the flip side, if you have a philosophical match, but you're just bogged down to your Toyota example of the same people and the same outcomes, you're going to end up with 
a similar business five, five degrees left, which isn't going to be enough externally in that marketplace. Yes, indeed. And hearing you say that, another classic entrepreneur success story. Totally forgotten the name of the chap. He's one of the least well-known people who has created three billion pound companies in this country. <laughs> I've forgotten his name. Uh, anyway, I did a course with him. A uh, very nice guy. And he set up First Direct within Middle- Midland Bank. And uh, he tells a very good story about how he did that. He had this idea that telephone banking could be a thing. So, of course, everyone goes, no, we've never done that. Of course, it won't work, etc., etc. Anyway, for some reasons I forget, he managed to see um, the chairman one-on-one. So he explains his thing. Look, I think telephone banking could be a thing. This is in the 90s, blah, blah, blah. And um, the chairman listened to him. And the chairman said, how much do you need? He thought he needed 50, so he asked for 75. <laughs> oh, 75. He said, OK, you've got it on one condition. At which point he's going to sign on the dotted line for anything. Yes, sir, what's the condition? That you don't tell anybody in Midland Bank whatsoever until this is unstoppable. Because if you do, they'll change it into the same thing as we're doing everywhere else. It's common. I, I, you know, the old CEO of MasterCard did the same thing. Or is it, you know, the guy who took the business from 30 billion, I think, a revenue in 2010 to 10 years later, 300 billion, set up a, a, a pod in Ireland, somewhere completely different outside of their office, and with their own budget that only he could see, not even his CFO, with the condition that after two years they needed to have two products that were sellable. And if they weren't, they'd be all fired. So you have a, a, a brutal cutoff, but you get two years of independence and different thinking. And I think that's an extreme example, but I think in any group that wants to develop something completely different, you have to go about it differently with a different set of people. But at the same time, a link back in. It's important that you, you still need a link back in to explain to the core of the people what's going on with their money, just like you would with any investor. Yes, and it's interesting talking about this entrepreneurial model about how mega-organisations can make successes out of doing something radically fresh. As you rightly say, there's this yin-yang balance between, on the one hand, you have to grant quite a lot of an autonomy. On the other hand, there needs to be some discipline involved. It's a bit like having teenage kids. OK, you can stay out late, but you need to be back by 11 o'clock or midnight or whatever. And hearing your story makes me recall a very interesting documentary on the making of the original Star Wars film, where Lucas obviously needed radically different, 10x, 100x better special effects than ever existed before. So he set up this, let's call it subsidiary for the sake of argument, probably wasn't, never mind. He set up this subsidiary which became Industrial Light and Magic in a warehouse somewhere nowhere near the rest of the film and all that kind of stuff, and it employed all these PhDs and super clever guys to create some whole special effects thing. And they were busy, you know, innovating and doing all this kind of stuff. But after two years, they hadn't delivered one second of film, you know. Now, on the one hand, it's like a pyramid, you know, or or an iceberg, as it were, mixing my metaphors. But you're building the iceberg below the water, you can't see anything. And then people say, well, actually, there's nothing above the water. Well, hang on, I'm doing all this. However, on the other hand, look, we want the bloody iceberg, you know. We're filming the Titanic next week. It's no good saying it's all all under the water. We want it to point out. So Lucas had to go there when he's busy having heart attacks over the financing and all sorts of other problems like that and rein it in. And say, guys, look, I love your innovation. I love all these scientific papers you're doing. I love the fact you're coding away. We need some bleeding film. You know, so you had to sort of really grip it to that time without throttling its neck and killing the sort of the chick. It's a constant tension. And if I think back to what we did with, with Spectrum, in hindsight now, having done it, it tends to go in three-year cycles. It took us, in hindsight, three years from idea to actually launch. It's taken us from three years from launching to bedding down to where I think we're starting to be commercially successful. And I think in the next three years, you'll see us transform commercially as well. I think at the outset, you have that constant tension, and then you need some, I'm trying to find a better word, but you need some faith and some trust 
from people who have seen it done before in the bigger organization. And that tends to be not a huge amount of people, but it needs to be the key people. It needs to be the people who are the group CEO. It needs to be somebody on that board or more than one that have seen and have the patience to see a new business through because every day is impatient as are the people that are running it as am I but it takes time as you say with the iceberg example and understandably in a large corporation you're spending money on lots of things at different times there are always competing interests as to what that money can be spent on and of course everything on paper looks a much better opportunity than everything that's in practice that hasn't delivered yet and that's that link that tension is something that um, in this case is my job to manage and there's been difficult periods to do that but I don't think it's that different to an external entrepreneur having to manage that with their investors and in some some cases there's pros and obviously in some places there's cons but that's it's a constant tension. Right okay so well that was an interesting dive into entrepreneurial challenges both for the entrepreneur but also for the organization and the yin yang of managing that. Moving on to the main course in terms of the impact that, let's just say, 21st century digital technology, for the sake of a bunch of words, can have on markets per se. Maybe in the usual fashion, we'll start off with just a little bit of context of, you know, markets have been around for a long time before there were computers and all that kind of stuff. So we set the scene and we established the kind of strengths and weaknesses of, as it were, non-computery markets. To make it clearer, what quotes computers have been able to do for the sake of argument the last 30 years of the 20th century and then how for somebody like you that's changed in the 21st century to be able to go to another iteration of this whole process. Yeah you're absolutely right so markets have been you know from trading in in street markets in bazaars and so on markets have been around for a while evolved into financial markets if I come at it from a slightly different angle I'm not going to sit here and talk about digitalization of markets and how that affects into the detail you've got to look at society. Markets follow people. Over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a big increase in people taking decisions and wanting to take decisions and make their own decisions on markets, which has coincided with an increase of people that are working in financial markets. So they think they have the information to be able to do that. If we go back to the 80s, everybody watches Wall Street, Gordon Gecko. You phone somebody to make the trade. Today, A, people don't maybe trust, and B, they think, well, why am I going to phone Gordon Gecko? I'll, I'll make the trade myself, and I'll decide what I do with my own money. That, of course, coincides with a societal and economic need for people to now invest and make their own money. I think you and I have discussed in the past, it's no longer a society where you can rely on your pension fund and just go all the way up to 60, 65, and then the pension fund pops out and, and, and you're looked after. People understand you need to do something with your wealth and your money. If you look at it from that perspective, you then zone into financial markets and you say, okay, from a a business perspective, where can we remove barriers? Where can we make that friction less? And how do we take the burden from a wider group of people and take it either through technology or just through efficiency in systems and make the offering smoother, cleaner? You mentioned banking in the past. A very very obvious example of that in, in banking is you know, I remember my parents used to have to go to the high street bank to get their balance. Well, now nobody needs to do that. Now you transfer everything on your app. So you can do it anytime, anywhere, and you can get it done. Okay, that's had other consequences in terms of shutting branches and so on, but in terms of the experience, for a wider group of people, it's, it's easier. Bringing it to our business and exchange, the idea is, well, why should an exchange close at 5 o'clock? 
you're now going to a wider group of retail people that actually five o'clock is really inconvenient, but at five o'clock they're probably on the tube home or they're, they're trying to get home. They probably don't want to look at the financial market until nine or 10 after the family's eaten and so on. So that's just one example of whether it's technology or whether it's just coming at it fresh at a different time, it's removing barriers, removing friction to be able to allow people to do what they want at a societal level. Yes, and I can see that makes a lot of sense. So just as a sort of quick caricature sketch on the whiteboard, one might say for the sake of argument that between 1980 and uh, 2000, computers uh, were used for wholesale businesses like the fixed interest one I was running. It was extremely primitive what the portfolio management system did. It basically just about kept track of what was in the portfolio. And actually, I never asked anybody at the time, but I assume about a decade before, they would have just kept manual ledgers of you know, what's in people's portfolios and all, all that kind of stuff. Computers only really came in in terms of bank accounts in the, in the 60s. Um, but for the sake of argument, in the uh, end of the 20th century, computers uh, came in for professional wholesale markets and professional wholesale financial services businesses. And then, as you're pointing out, a large part of the, the digital revolution in this context being the mobile phone and that has changed consumer expectations. And if you can buy a book on Amazon at midnight, why can't I buy, I don't know, a few BP shares at <laughs> midnight? I'm not really interested in the fact that it's a bit inconvenient or uh, any, anything like that. So looking at that particular issue then, obviously on the podcast, we've touched on a number of times in the years, the whole idea that people with a mobile phone in their pocket want to do things on the mobile phone and financial services being different from anything else in that regard. But just from a market perspective, sticking with this in terms of the theory of markets, what are the challenges just from the market perspective of being able to do that? So again, going back to the day when I was running fixed income and all this kind of stuff, if we had a big deal to put on in the, the guilt market, say, in a particular guilt, well, actually, in the, the good old days pre-Big Bang, you need a broker and you go through the jobber, and then, and then a bit later there was just um, the, the guilt market. But still to this day, markets, whether it's the guilt market or whether it's gold market or whatever, in certain countries, they will open and they will close. And what that practically means is that for doing large pieces of business, if you want to sell something, you can't sell it to a computer. Somebody on the other end has got to buy it from you. Let's say for the sake of argument, I want to sell a billion of a certain guilt, hell of a lot, 100 million of a certain guilt. I need someone to buy that from me. A computer isn't going to buy it. So this thing is that although we can say from a technological perspective and from a, a user expectation perspective that this, ha, ha, fuh, not doing it 24 hours a day, that's crazy. Yeah, sure, but you've still got the practical thing. I mean, let, let me give us a very, very simple example. We're talking about street markets. Let's just say you want to buy six loaves of bread. You need to find a baker to sell it to you. Or someone who's been to bake and got some bread. You can't just buy it from a computer. <laughs> you know. So how does that bit work? Yeah, that's, that's a brilliant question. That that's where your technology meets your financial markets. That's, that's for me is fintech, that's the fin part of it. So step all the way back. So at Spectrum, we took an exchange view. We had, a, we had a room like this, big long table, blank piece of paper. If you were about to build an exchange, how would you do it for the retail market? That's you, you building your technology. In our case, to take your, the example you've picked up on is 24 hours a day. Then in terms of a market, it's simply a marketplace. You still need people to come in and I always say, always say you, need, you need people to come into the nightclub. You've opened it, everything's great, you still need somebody to come in. So that's where, that's where we've spent the last two years. You've got to work with market makers, you've got to work with product distributors to come in and buy into the extended hours or buy into what they need to do. Now, 
that's not easy because you're wanting, they have to make some change as well. And to answer your question, you need the liquidity on there for people to, 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 to buy or sell. Having said that, you need a little bit of patience because if you go back to it, you're offering them an opportunity to increase their business. You're offering them an opportunity to say, hey, look, the, the structure is here. The marketplace is here. If you want to increase your business and you want to offer something for two or three hours more, it doesn't mean you have to be up all the way through the night. Here's an opportunity for you. Likewise, we, we, we also you know, broke down the barriers in Europe of being able to trade across all European countries. So if you then have somebody that's a German market maker or a German broker that wants to then expand their business into Italy, it's easier now through Spectrum. And so when you're, when you're in an environment, as we have been for the last 10 years, where everybody is looking for growth, and in financial markets, which is a pretty mature business, particularly outside of retail, everybody's looking for that edge. So it takes longer, back to our previous conversation over the iceberg and patience, it takes longer because you're building your own structure, you're then explaining your structure, you're then waiting for partners to being able to adapt to that structure. So it's long, 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 but the opportunity is there in an area where there aren't that many opportunities every day. Good, okay, so just picking apart some of the kind of schematics behind it, if we're doing a schematic of the car engine, as it were, and then we can move back onto, onto the car, well, what's the, the functionality of the car, but looking at the, the engine behind it. Again, people listen to the podcast more positions, and within FS, you can perfectly well have an entire career in FS and never actually touch a market. There's so much stuff going around there. I mean, trade finance is a prime example of, of that. Corporate finance is another, although they think they know about markets, but... I'm not sure they do. So just on the liquidity point, I think the simplest way is going back to the bread analogy, which is that you could probably go to your local baker and buy six loaves. I bet you couldn't go to your local baker and buy 666 loaves or 6,000 loaves. So the liquidity is the amount that's easily tradable, easy to buy or easy to sell. And let's take a silly example. You're allowed to sell bread to the baker. Now, in the case of a, of a, of a baker or in the fa case of the old-fashioned guilt market where you had jobbers, these people would have positions. So as it were, let's say I'm going to set up a market in bread. So I've got shelves and I've got, you know, wholemeal loaves over there and I've got sourdough loaves over there. And that is my inventory. And so you come and you, you sell me a loaf, I'll put it on the shelf. You buy a loaf, I'll take it off it. The analogy breaks down at this point because we'd have to get into going short of loaves and how you go short, but let, let's just keep it uh, simple. But in the case of Spectrum, and off the top of my head, Elmex Exchange, a market provider in a sense maybe like the London Stock Exchange, the market as a kind of almost physical entity, although a virtual entity in your case, the market itself doesn't take positions. 100%. You have no loaves. No, we are purely the venue, purely the marketplace. What we do control, however, which goes to this point, is we set the rules. And we set the rules, and this is a key thing, particularly for the retail space, is to make sure everything is fair and transparent. Now, everybody, every exchange is under an obligation to make sure the marketplace is fair and transparent. But what is that tailored to? In most exchange cases, most of their business is large institutions. In Spectrum's case, going back to the philosophical point, it's around the end retail client. Going back to this thread that we've continued where you want to place a trade at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, the liquidity rules to be able to provide liquidity on Spectrum mandate that you have a certain amount of liquidity at all times to be able to make it fair and to be able to make the retail client have positions and get in and out. We cannot mandate all liquidity at all times, but the balance is higher on Spectrum because the philosophy and the, the, the business is geared towards the retail. It's the rules of the club. So we absolutely do not partake in the club. 
we don't dance in the club, but the music, the venue, the lighting is all controlled by Spectrum. So, for example, if I carried on persuading you that loaves are a really important thing and people should be able to buy and sell loaves and this fits in extremely well with the sort of financial services product, give you too many biscuits or something, make you lose your, your thread, then, for example, metaphorically speaking, you'd say, OK, Mike, you can come in here, but you must always be ready to sell, even at midnight, six loaves. And you have to deliver those loaves within 24 hours or something like that. Correct. And you have to sign up to those rules. And if you can't meet those rules, you can't come onto the exchange. We cannot change the rules for Mike, but not for, for somebody else. Now, you might ask, OK, how does that work? Why would somebody come on there? We're talking pure retail. The business model is slightly different. The margins are slightly different. And we're trying to skew a little bit towards the retail client here so that they can trade on exchange in a transparent and open manner yet have the benefits of, of off-exchange trading as well. OTC, so over-the-counter trading. Okay, so explain the difference between on-market and... Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so, so trades that are placed on-exchange are a complete match automatically, so there's no, there's no difference in price, there's no variation. An over-the-counter trade is simply a trade... You and I could do an over-the-counter trade now, and the price would be... At a simple language, the price would be whatever we agree, and it doesn't matter how, how it relates to the markets. In reality, there is a lot of regulation around making sure that it does stay accurate. But on an exchange, everything is completely open in a glass box, which is why most people tend to prefer to trade that way. Yes, because you've got the transparency. And looking at this thing about computers and people and markets, if we take that triangle, and you have to go and chat up a few brokers to provide, for the sake of argument, 24-7 service on loaves of bread, and you, you tell them that they're going to make some money by doing so, which is obviously their motivation for doing it, and the business will grow and all that kind of jazz. But... Bread sellers aren't going to want to stay up 24 hours a day. They might not even want to have to employ people in shifts or around the world to stay up and take orders for bread. And I assume, I don't know too much about technology, but I assume that, for example, if I buy a book from Amazon at midnight, there isn't somebody sitting there taking the order, writing it on a piece of paper and giving it to somebody else. But they have a computer that's doing stuff and the, the computer lets someone else's computer know that Mike's ordered um, a book on biscuits at midnight and the, the, the computer then does all the things that this whoever produces the book on biscuits and sends it out or no to Amazon and Amazon sends it on or something like that some logistics in the background so in the case of financial markets if you're talking about industrial scale mega deals of a billion dollars sterling dollar or something like that mega banks do I assume these days that you still need people to do the mega deals in the mega bank you want someone on, on you know who's actually the the, the dealer but I equally assume that if you've got an organisation like that doing billion-dollar trades during the day, that they might equally, a bit like the Amazon bookseller thing, uh, have a computer that sort of sits there at midnight and is quite happy to deal with a million in you because it's sort of a round of drinks and it might be algorithmically programmed. So how does that angle work these days? You know, you mentioned brokers and, and, and people, but you have legal agreements with organisations as to what the organisation needs to do. But the organisation, just like an Amazon, doesn't actually have people sitting there all the time doing it. And some of it is done, quotes, by computers. So how, how does that work in the modern yeah, world? A couple of points to tease out there. So I'll answer it from a spectrum angle, then I'll come at it from your, from your Amazon seller. So from our angle, as a marketplace, we have people. We have people around the clock. Why is that? Because we really can't afford for anything to go wrong. And at the heart of all technology, you still need people. And in the end, you need people when the technology goes wrong. So we, we have that around the clock and we have that coverage to make sure that the marketplace is orderly 24 hours a day. It's not easy to put in place, as you alluded to, but we do do it around the clock. 
In terms of then going back to your Amazon analogy of the distributor, it depends, the classic answer. So you, if you talk to a new setup broker, you would be surprised how willing they are to have the shift or to set up differently because they're at a stage where they can change their infrastructure and set up. If you're talking to a, an established broker, they're looking to automate it. Having said that, it's not so easy for them to automate it because they have big existing systems. So you're right in that most most trading is done on technology and is automated, but in the end, it's, it's similar to the Spectrum story for each of these brokers. The risk comes when the technology doesn't work as it should do because the the ability for an end retail client to be able to trade at the time they want to trade is for them to get the price at that time. So it's not good enough to say to somebody who may have just been not be able to sleep and has been watching the news channel and seen something in Hong Kong and wanted to place a trade based on that information that actually I only got it through at 8 o'clock in the morning when everybody came to the office. So the operational model will be based around technology, which I think is where you were alluding. But in, at the end, everybody needs a fail-safe of what happens when that goes wrong, which ultimately does lead to people. Less people, but you still need a person yes. or two. I saw one recently, I think it, maybe it was a tweet or something, about some fat-fingered, as they used to call them, um, and I thought this had gone away actually, but clearly not, fat-fingered work from home trader, I don't know, like Citigroup or something, you put a few zeros on by mistake, and, and, and that caused a problem. And this is an example of where there needs to be some human oversight because maybe the computer didn't have the relevant ruling that says, you know, don't do trillion dollars. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, the fat finger still goes on. At the end of the day, you can't eliminate mistakes and neither can technology. All you can do is minimize them. And probably after that fat finger, there was something put in place in, in, in their tech system to make sure that scenario doesn't happen again. But you can bet your bottom dollar that something else would come up that hasn't been programmed. So you can just try to minimize operationally as much as you can, but you can't eliminate them. And just to take another tangent or another angle on the topic before we talk about the future and where you think all this is going for the retail customer. In this world of hyper-regulation where absolutely everything under the sun is regulated, it seems to me that a lot of markets are still self-regulating and the notable example that's very much in my mind is the catastrophe at the, as I see it, catastrophe at the London Metals Exchange where they decided to, oh let's just cancel a day's trades. Well, if you don't know much about much, and if you're not a lawyer like you, you go, oh, yeah, OK, that makes sense. But if you're a lawyer, you understand that the whole basis of, for the sake of argument, Western civilization or global civilization is actually that contracts matter. <laughs> and if you start scrapping contracts, go, oh, fuck those contracts, those are a pain in the ass. The whole complex edifice that we're surrounded by literally just starts falling apart. So I thought that was hideous. And uh, apart from some brouhaha, not much seemed to happen, but I noticed, I think, uh, this week or last week, that some American hedge fund or something is now suing them for $450 million. Again, as a lawyer, we'll have a more sophisticated understanding, but I think they're banging on about the fact that they're contracts and you can't cancel my contract, uh, something like that. So above markets or within the markets, how does it work? I mean, as far as I saw, and I said that so at the time of the podcast, they just shot themselves in both feet because along with the computers and the people and the technology and the market... There's this thing called trust, you know, and it's the, the cliche, but it's absolutely true that trust is hard to win, but easy to lose. 100% agree, and even more with a magnifying glass when you're looking at a retail market. Well, it's like Revolut. I moan to everyone I see about like six weeks now. It's just ridiculous, you know. It's a wider pool of people when you're going to retail, which actually means a lot more voices, but you have more coverage to, to put into place. And so you're absolutely right. So trust 
if I bring it back to us, trust comes from a technological level. You're a new piece of technology in an established industry. It needs to work fundamentally. Um, unfortunately, we've had something that, that has worked 100% for a couple of years. And then you've got the trust of the marketplace as, as an exchange or any, or any independent marketplace, as you alluded to earlier on, we don't trade in anything. The transparency and the openness of that market, to an extent, no matter what the result may be, is paramount especially with retail, with your example, with, with Revolut. Having said that, exchanges do have fail-safes if something is just going crazy in the market to be able to shut the market. And I'm sure in the LME case, they would have had something in their rules that would have allowed them to do that, and that they'll have that argument, I'm sure. I don't know the full details of the matter. But there is always a right thing to do. And when you're a marketplace that's independent, it's actually not very difficult to spot what that right thing is to do. You're not supposed to be biased towards one result or the other, which actually makes the, the action easier to see. It can, from a business perspective, I would imagine in that case, be difficult to do sometimes. May in fact a big client of theirs or, what, or whatever, and I'm, oh, there'll be some color behind it. But when you're independent, it's actually easier to see. And as you say, in, in, the, in the Western world, rule of law, contracts, all of that is actually just underpinned by trust and, and you can, you know, there's many people in, uh, in litigation and legal arguments for many, many years, doesn't solve anything or get anywhere, at the end of the day the trust is, is, is eroded and, and in the business that we're in you can't have that. Yes, and we didn't get into it and there isn't time for it, but one thing we didn't really touch on was the semantics of what a market is or how you define uh, a market. And I think that's very relevant to the actions they took there. So, again, just thinking of it in a pre-Big Bang terms, the gilt market, all the stock exchange, you had jobbers, you had people who had positions, you had brokers who, as it were, answer the telephone, some might wants to buy 10 BP shares, the, the, the stockbroker goes to a jobber and says, can I have 10 BP shares of my client? The jobber says, fair enough, 450. He, you know, broker jogs back and gives me a call. And so I think there's this sort of attitude, and this is certainly what's being uh, alleged directly, I believe, by the hedge fund, because it was quite clear at the time, which is that the LME were considering the market as being the health of all the major players in it, a number of whom were going to be absolutely fucked and going bankrupt. And so they want it. They, their understanding of market in that context, we're responsible for the market, we're responsible for the principal players not going bust. Because if they all go bust, we might have a nice rule book and some nice lawyers, but we won't have any bloody business. Anyway, that seems a bit uh, in, in, insane. So we, we shall see. So we've talked, Nikki, about quite a lot of things here. We've kicked a, a, a number around. I mean, I particularly like the way that we've raised issues, hopefully to enable the listeners to think um, there are some principles involved in all these matters, but there's never particularly uh, a, right of wrong, a right or wrong. You're always trying to balance these things. You gave the example of a club, perfectly possible, for example, to open a new nightclub in Manchester and have next to nobody go, because even though it's a nice nightclub and it's got good decorations and music or whatever and a nice set of rules and good bounces or however you want to think about it, no one turns up. So there's also this sort of commerciality of making the market a success. But in terms of pulling together all these various threads of the tapestry and the future and where retail markets and fintech are going over the next few years, how do you see it? I mean, I, I like the fact that you're not one of these extreme technophiles who says, oh, yes, that, that it'll all be run by robots and AI and computers will do everything. And, you know, you don't need people. I think that's perhaps uh, one of the few benefits, apart from uh, having no, no doubt many Aston Martin Lagondas or something at home, that's in being a lawyer because... Lawyers realise far better, I believe, than software people 
that there ain't no set of rules that can be followed mechanically. That's why you have courts, because you can have, you can have your contract and all this kind of stuff, and your lawyer can say this, and some of those lawyers are going to say us. But you need some geezer at the end going, I think, I think you're right over there, and I think you're wrong, mate. You know. So how do you see it going, if I assume correctly, that you don't see it going along the way that, oh, it's all going to be run by robots in five years, and I'll employ one man and a dog, and that'll be it? No, I certainly don't subscribe to that view. But I do think the technology the impact of technology will, will not slow down and it is massive in terms of its efficiency, in terms of bringing efficiency in. But at the end of the day, and you're probably right with your lawyer synopsis there, you need ideas and the innovation for a new business, how to apply that technology, how to analyze a market, not in terms of the financial markets, but as a business market, and have an instinct for what will work and what won't work. And in the end, have the determination and the grit to see something through comes from human beings. No, no computer will have those qualities. What computers and technology can do is they can make operational and day-to-day -day tasks more efficient, more accurate, less mistakes. But the role of the human being will just simply remove one step behind. And I think it will get, it actually, in my view, will lead to more creativity and more ideas because your, your, your energy and your brain power is not taken up by the day-to-day -day operational tasks. In terms of the financial markets and its impact on that, I think that won't slow down. We've seen it. We talk about retail banking. We, we've spoken about the exchange industry. The spectrum is in. I think you'll just see technology is, is a running beast now that won't stop. You'll see it in everything that's coming through. Where I think perhaps industries and people need to be careful is just to slow it down and to apply it correctly. Sometimes I see we are all, as human beings, but in particular technologists, are very proud of the technology that they've created and it doesn't always have the best application or the application to an end client or a use. The fundamentals of any market or business hasn't changed for centuries and centuries. There needs to be a provision of value to someone and that someone is a human being somewhere. Uh, and as long as the, 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 the eye is kept on that ball, then I think, then I think technology is a huge asset. But that, that control, no doubt, comes from human beings. Excellent. Well, you've been a very good guest in terms of being disciplined and not mentioning what the spectrum is, in particular what your customers are, what markets you're in, which countries you're in, and so we'll move on to that in a second for the wrap-up. Does that course? Before we wrap up, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Nikki, you mentioned Spectrum once or twice, but I don't know, and perhaps many or most listeners don't know, that you're a nice market. What are they markets in? I assume that it's not bread. And who are the markets uh, for? Yeah, absolutely. So Spe Spectrum's a pan-European stock exchange that's, that's based for end retail investors. Uh, so designed in Europe to be able to make Europe seamless. It's, it's designed for the end retail clients with the extended hours that we've touched on already. And it's been in that marketplace now for coming up to three years. We've had, we've had great growth actually, one that I'm really proud of. We've, we've grown by nearly 100% last year again, and we're on target to beat that again this year. In terms of what we're trying to do now, which is to increase product and in distribution, just like any marketplace as we've discussed. Um, financial markets for me, in terms of retail investors, is very, it's an overcomplicated subject from a retail 
investor perspective, somebody simply wants to take a view on an asset class as to whether it will go up and down. And then the structure around that product is down to the person's risk appetite and how long they want to hold it. And what we intend to do on Spectrum is to increase the amount of products to be able to go up and down that risk timeline and then increase the distribution throughout Europe. So we've started to, we operate in all of the major European countries. And when you say Europe in this context, you mean the continent, the EU, the EEA, or the geography? I mean post-Brexit Europe, so, so, so not, not, not including England at the moment. So is Norway? Norway is included. Yeah, Norway is included in, but you know, Italy, France, Germany, Spain, Sweden are, are big markets for us. Which countries can retail people access your market to do stuff in? All of them. So you can do it from Vanuatu to Colombia? In Europe. Okay. If you're, you're in the continent of Europe and Scandinavia, which we touched on the show recently, you can buy European equities? US equities, global equities. You can buy, um, underli- we have all the underlying, so FX, commodities, indices. Oh, okay. You can buy roughly anything. <laughs> you can buy roughly anything and in terms of securitized derivatives, and then we'll be building out the, the product class on that. And you can trade it. And it's the infrastructure of Spectrum that's unique. So you can trade that 24 by 5. You can be seamless throughout Europe. And then we haven't touched on it, we haven't had time today, but the, the beauty of coming at it fresh was, is that the back-end cost, the infrastructure cost, has been really slimmed down, and that saving can just be passed on to the end retail client. And that's where we've been able to, to squeeze out something from maybe 40 years ago in the market. And having mentioned Spectrum once or twice, what is Spectrum from the perspective of a retail client? Do I go to the Google App Store and find Spectrum's app? Do I log on to a website? Are you white-labeled by, I don't know, Interactive Investor or Vanguard? Or yeah, no, you find, you find a broker that is active on, on Spectrum, so you cannot directly trade, but you find a broker that's active on Spectrum and you can trade on that venue. And the benefit to you as a, as a retail client is you get access to a market that is, was set up for you, which is not a sideshow to a, a hedge fund exchange or, a, or an institutional exchange. And when you say broker, is something like Interactive Invest... I mean, Vanguard is not a good example, because you go to Vanguard's yeah, site, so they've can... only got Vanguard funds. But you go to Interactive Investor, then you can buy and sell stuff and all that thing. And I've got no idea what computers are behind or whether they speak to you or don't speak to you. or uh, I have no idea how it works. That's sort of seamless. Correct. Exactly that. So, so Interactive would be an example of someone like that that could be a distributor on, on, on Spectrum. And you, you wouldn't see the plumbing behind it. Where you would feel the effect is that... Going back to our example, two o'clock in the morning, you see the news, you want to place a trade. Because that is piped through to Spectrum, you can actually do that. Whereas if it was piped through to just the LSE or another exchange, obviously you wouldn't be able to do it. And so just from a commercial perspective going forwards, what are your main directions of growth at the moment? I mean, you can presumably always do with more client-facing brokers, as you call them, or platforms to sign up and use your conduit your use your pipes behind and electricity cables and, and all this kind of stuff absolutely so th- i mean there's two prongs on this for me so one is of course to increase distribution let's call it that so brokers etc to get to more clients and more access that's an obvious one and that's what any business will have to have but the second one which i'm i'm particularly keen to hang on to i mean we've been established now for coming up to three years so we're no longer a startup so to speak but i want us to operate always with a parallel structure so we're looking at what the next phase behind will be so one is to increase the business as usual, increase the distribution. But the second one is we're keen to look at, with the structure that we have set up, which is hard to change a structure in this industry, how does it work for digital assets? How does it work for different types of products? How does it work for something that we haven't thought of yet that can work on this structure? 
and I'm keen to keep the innovative uh, startup feel going back to the human beings that we have and the ideas because everything here takes two years time so the things we do today take two years to come out and at the same time establish the, the, the current business that has been going for three years and to expand on that. So those are the two prongs that are always in my mind to, to make sure that we're pushing on to. As a final question, I didn't have much feel for scale. How many people in Spectrum and, and what kind of volumes of business are you currently doing? Yeah, so in, in Spectrum on the, on the pure operational business side, we have around 30 to 40 people. And then we have a similar amount on the technology side that is constantly building out new ideas or the existing business as well. Uh, based, dotted all around Europe and in fact further afield as well given the 24 by 5 structure. In terms of what we're doing, I mean last year we hit 1.35 billion in turnover and we're on track to, to increase that by nearly 200% going into this year as well. So with a, with a small product set and how we started, I think that's uh, pretty happy with that. Well, that's pretty impressive. That's been a, a fascinating uh, conversation, Nikki, both into the challenges of successful entrepreneurialism for the organization and for the uh, subsidiary, uh, as well as the interaction between technology and markets and people. And I wish you and Spectrum every success in the future. Thank you. Appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city With the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the Mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight.